Good morning again, church. Let me welcome you to a brand new series of messages we're entitled, entitling My Story. My Story. This is a story about, or a series about your story. This is a series about your story and how your story actually can relate to God's eternal story. For the next six weeks, this series is going to remind you that the only reason our stories are significant is because through Jesus Christ, they can become eternal. Have you ever stopped to think about your Old Testament? What is the Old Testament? 39 books. The Old Testament is filled with stories. It's a storybook. It's a book about ordinary men and ordinary women and ordinary people groups and ordinary civilizations and how those stories relate to God's overarching eternal story. And then you move into the New Testament. And there's a passage in Colossians where Paul said, Jesus Christ created, he imagined, and then he created the universe. And it is only through Jesus Christ, according to Paul, that the universe holds together, that it is sustained. That's like saying, if Jesus ever takes his finger off the universe, it will implode. And then what's fascinating about it is, that same Jesus chose to become human and step into our history. There's no doubt that his story was significant. There's no doubt that the story of Jesus changed everything. But when Jesus left his disciples, he told them, now go and tell my story. That began, that New Testament story began the New Testament church revolution. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, that means that your story, no matter how insignificant you believe it to be, is part of God's overarching eternal story, and that's what makes it significant. So I decided to kick off this series of messages by telling you my story. This is my story. Now, if you've been around Grace for a long time, maybe you've heard my story. So I apologize in advance that you're going to have to sit through it again. But there are so many new people at Grace, about every five or six years, I think it's important for your pastor to tell his story. This is who I was. This is where I've been. This is who I am now. There are two things I'd like you to know about me as we start. I'm a proud Cleveland Browns fan, and I love Jesus Christ. You say, how does a little boy who grew up in Florida become a Cleveland Browns fan? Well, that's pretty simple. In 1978, I was 12 years old, and my team was the Buccaneers. They, in 78, were only two years old, and they had yet to win a game, I think. They were horrible. They were almost unwatchable. So every Sunday after church, when we'd turn on the NFC channel, we'd watch the Bucks. And about halftime, when they were losing by 30, we'd switch over to the AFC channel. And if the Miami Dolphins were not playing that Sunday, they broadcast the Cleveland Browns. Now, I don't know why. I don't know if a lot of people from Cleveland retired to the Tampa area. Uh, but I got to know the Cleveland Browns. Brian Sipe was their quarterback. It wasn't a few years after that. Bernie Kosar, number 19, he threw the ball sidearm. Uh, he was incredible. He became our quarterback. 
Uh, Believe it or not, Bill Belichick was our coach, if you can imagine. And for some reason, we fired him right after we fired Bernie. And then we started losing. But when I was a child, the Cleveland Browns were some of the most entertaining football you could ever watch. They were called the Cardiac Kids because they'd get right to the edge and then they'd do something outrageous and win the game. The Cleveland Browns, three out of five years, were one play from going to the AFC Championship game. They were almost in the Super Bowl. So I learned all their names. Clay Matthews was our middle linebacker, and he was every bit as tough and strong and determined as his son, Clay Jr. That was my team. When I went to high school, I was all about athletics. I was all about excelling, really, and hearing people clap. That's what I was about. I wanted to be good at whatever I did. I got good grades in high school. Uh, I was the quarterback of the football team in high school. I played basketball. I earned all conference honors in baseball, all state honors in baseball. Our high school team, it was a small high school like Metter or Portal. We won the state championship two years in a row, my junior and senior year. And I was a big part of that, team captain, most valuable player. I was an all-state goalie, if you can believe that. Played soccer since I was a kid, but I'm terribly uncoordinated with my feet, so they stuck me in goal. And when you're six foot four in the ninth grade, you get pretty good at covering that goal. In high school, I met the love of my life, my high school sweetheart. I was a senior, she was a junior. We fell in love. It was magical. We were that cute little couple that wandered around the, the high school and wandered around the church, and, and the adults would say, oh, look how cute they are. Look at that little couple. She was the cheerleader at the top of the pyramid, and and I was the quarterback or the captain of the team. And and we traveled together. We did a lot of things together. And and we just had a great little high school romance, as so many of you are familiar with. At the end of my schooling, I knew exactly what I was going to do with my life. Because when I was 17 years old and I went away to summer camp, a church camp, a lot like the church camps Tyler takes our kids to, I decided at that summer camp that I was going to give my life to Jesus. I said, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, and whatever you want from me, I'm willing to do it. Because I love you. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross in my place. You rose again. I will become a follower of Jesus Christ. And from that moment on, I was very serious about my faith. So when I graduated, I knew exactly what I was going to be. I thought I'd be a coach or a school teacher. I loved history, still do. I thought I'd be a youth pastor like Tyler. I thought I'd be involved with young people in some way, but God had other plans. I didn't realize it at the time. I went to Tennessee Temple University on a partial baseball scholarship. I was going to be a catcher for a college team. Now, Tennessee Temple University was a university and a seminary. You could go there and be a school teacher. You could go there and study pre-law if you wanted, but you could also be a minister. And so my classes revolved around theology and Christian education. Well, as soon as I got to the campus in Chattanooga, I fell in love with the mountains. I mean, I was a Florida boy, and now I was smack dab in the middle of some of the prettiest scenery you could ever imagine. Chattanooga sits like a bowl surrounded by mountains. You get 20 minutes outside of the city, and you're in some of the most beautiful mountainous country you'll ever see. So as soon as we got there, if I wasn't playing ball, we were trout fishing. We were whitewater rafting. These are things you can't do in Florida. We were hiking the mountains. We were camping out. Uh, We went up to Sunset Rock quite often. 
You go to Sunset Rock. It's on the west side of Lookout Mountain. It's this beautiful place, kind of a park-like setting. And it's just this big rock. You sit on it. People take their girl up there, and they smooch and all that as the sun goes down. My girl, since she was a year younger than me, was still in Florida while I was trying to get through my freshman year. I went up there to study. So I'd carry a book or a backpack or, or something to write, take some notes, and I'd go up there and just enjoy the scenery. Well, one day when I was up there, there was a group of young guys, and they were rappelling off of Sunset Rock. Now, I had never seen this, never done this, so I decided to go over and ask some questions, and so I did. I asked questions. Within 10 minutes, I was strapped up and going off the side of that mountain. They gave me a few pointers, and off I went. It was one of the coolest, most exhilarating, adrenaline-packed experiences of my life. It was like, oh, I don't know, 80, 90 feet to the bottom. It wasn't long after that before several of us athletes, a couple of baseball players, a couple of soccer players in the house dorm in which I lived, we went out and bought a 200-foot rappelling rope and all the gear and the climbing gear necessary to go off the side of some of these mountains. We found another place, Signal Mountain. Signal Mountain wasn't 80 feet. Signal Mountain had bluffs that were 100 and 200 feet long or uh, high. So we'd go off the edge, and we got to where we'd tie up backwards. We'd go off Australian, if you've ever seen this. You tie up backwards, and you go off face forward. It's amazing. Incredible. If you're 18 and 19, and you're an adrenaline junkie, I'm telling you, this was phenomenal. Be but because we were adrenaline junkies, because we loved the experience, it, it kind of wore thin pretty quickly. It wasn't long before it was like, no, I don't think I want to go because it, it was thrilling for a moment, but then, then you had to walk all the way around the long way, the path, all the way back up to the top to do it again. So we decided to take it up a notch. We decided to embrace free climbing. We went out and bought $200 boots, these special climbing boots, and then a little bag for chalk at your waist, and that's all you have. We would start at the bottom of Signal Mountain. Now, don't picture a giant cliff, okay? Picture the Tennessee River as it rolls through the mountains. We would park one car up at the top, jump in another car, drive it all the way down to the bottom. Then we'd start hiking through the woods. And we'd come to the first cliff. It might only be 30 feet, but we would climb it. And then we'd hike some more. And we'd come to the next one. It might be 50 feet, and we would climb it. And then we'd hike some more. The next biggest cliffs were 100 and 200 feet. By the time we got to the top, it took like four hours, and we were exhausted. But the thrill was so powerful. It was so consuming. It was so exhilarating that it's what we did every time we had a free chance. We'd cut classes to go climb mountains, the whole group of us. Well, on one particular Thursday afternoon, November, it was chilly outside. We decided to cut class and go climb the mountain. And then this happened. Thanks to a five-hour rescue effort and the work of more than 50 people, an 18-year-old Temple student is alive today. Mike Holt fell from a top signal point while hiking with two friends late Thursday. Photographer Butch Manning and I were with the rescue workers for much of the night and for more, and that's what out turned out to be a happy ending. I was there with him as I held him, and I, I kept wondering any minute when he was going to die. It all began with three friends on a hiking trip. It ended some five hours later, after one of the boys, 18-year-old Mike Holt, lost his footing, falling 60 feet down the mountain onto a sharp tree stump, puncturing a lung. 50 people aided in the youth's rescue, and it wasn't easy. A much-needed helicopter was bogged down in bad weather in Nashville. The only decision was to repel down the mountain to the victim. 
It took three hours to bring him down the mountainside, but it worked. It wasn't a pretty sight, but at least he was alive. It was the second accident in the past month on Signal Mountain. Unfortunately, the last person wasn't so lucky. This time, there were 50 people to make sure Mike Holt made it. He remains in stable condition at Erlanger Hospital. I had made it halfway up one of the largest climbs. I was right at the 80, 90 foot mark. We know that because a year after I fell, we all took our rappelling gear back out to the same place, rappelled where I fell, and used our rope to measure. Nearly eight stories off the cliff, hitting the rocks below. Thank God it wasn't flat where I landed, or I probably wouldn't have stood a chance. It was kind of, kind of sloped and slanted. I, I landed on my feet and just, just crushed my body and kind of, kind of crumpled forward and slid down the mountain a little bit, and my foot lodged between a rock and a tree, and that stopped me from going off another 50-foot cliff, which probably would have finished me off. What I had fallen in a matter of seconds, and all I could remember for a very long time was, was seeing the sky and the ground and the trees and the rock and the sky and the ground and the trees and the rock, and then this horrible noise I made when I hit. What I had fallen in just a few seconds, it took Doug, the guy you saw, my buddy, about 50 minutes to climb down to reach me. There was a third member there who was also on the video. His name was Brandon. He climbed on up to the top and went and got help. By the time Doug got to me, I couldn't move my body. I had a gaping hole in my chest. My lung had collapsed. I didn't know it. There was a huge sucking sound coming out of my, my chest. Doug took my wallet. He had the idea to take my wallet and press it over there and kind of seal that, that hole so I could catch my breath. And we sat there that day, two 19-year-olds, thinking, this is the day that one of us dies. Because while it took Doug 50 minutes to get to me, it took another 45 or 50 minutes for the rescue team to get there. Now, there was a helicopter in Chattanooga that performed such rescues, but it was uh, out on busy on another call. They talked about bringing one from Nashville, but Nashville was grounded by weather. So what they decided to do was they rappelled down to me, and they put me in a basket, and they hooked up tubes to kind of drain fluids, and they gave me shots to kind of help with the pain. And they tied me into this basket, and then they would lower me off of the cliff, and then they'd rappel down to me. They'd pick me up and carry me as far as they could. Then they'd lower me off the next one, and then they'd rappel down to me, and then they'd carry me as far as they could. Meanwhile, there's a whole other team of people at the bottom of the mountain, and they're kind of chopping their way through with a four-wheel drive ambulance, and they're trying to get up so that the two can meet some point that evening. I fell at 4 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon, and I didn't get to Erlanger Medical Center until 11 o'clock that night. It took seven hours. The paramedics told me if the temperature hadn't dropped dramatically that afternoon, I'd have probably bled to death before anybody ever got to me. But the temperature went from like mid-70s down to low 50s in a matter of just a couple of hours. That's the same weather that grounded that helicopter in Nashville. When I got to the hospital and they started running tests, that's when I realized how, what kind of shape I was in. I don't want to over-exaggerate one bit, but if you name it, probably I broke it. I broke legs and ankles and wrists and arms and elbows. I cracked all of the ribs on one side. The most serious, aside from the punctured and collapsed lung, was I exploded. I shouldn't say exploded. I fractured, and then they swole up and broke two vertebrae in my neck and two in my lower back. Uh, even today, that's why I've got spacers and screws and bars in my back, uh, because of that accident. 
There were five days in intensive care that I couldn't feel my feet. The athlete in the prime of his life who thought he had the world by the tail couldn't even walk. I spent three weeks in intensive care, another three weeks in the hospital. Sweetest, sweetest nurse, I'll never forget her. Heavy set black lady. Her name was Evelyn. She came in, she started taking care of me. I'm going to take care of you, honey. She told me, now, I'm going to bathe you, but here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to bathe as high as possible, and I'm going to bathe as low as possible. You're going to bathe your own possible. (laughs) She said she prayed for me every day. While I was in the hospital, I got to meet the university chancellor and president. I got to meet the dean. They came by my hospital room. At the end of my hospital stay, my dad drove a van all the way to Chattanooga from Tampa. They made a bed in the back so that I could lay out flat because I had casts on all kinds of parts of my body. And they drove me 10 hours down I-75 home. I stayed home for a solid month. I came back to school. I still had braces and some casts. And I was kind of like a celebrity around the campus. Everybody knew my name. They were pushing me around in a wheelchair. They'd even get a golf cart and kind of take me to my classes. Pretty girls would carry my books up into the classroom. Everybody knew that I was the guy who fell off a signal mountain. In fact, everywhere we'd go in the community, if we went out for pizza, me and my buddies, man, what happened to you? They'd point at me. One of my guys, one of my buddies would say, you remember that guy that fell off the signal mountain? That's you? I'd say, yeah, that's me. We got so tired of telling that story. Finally, we're at the bowling alley. Now, obviously, I wasn't bowling. I couldn't bowl, but we're at the bowling alley. I'm hanging with my buddies, and they're bowling, and this guy walks by me and goes, man, what happened to you? And Doug, my high school best friend, college best friend, he was the guy you saw in the video. He actually helped me start this church. Doug said, did you hear about that guy that fell off a signal mountain? That guy goes, yeah, I did. Doug goes, well, he caught him. At that moment in my life, God was enormous. God had saved me. God had done something incredible that I just didn't think he did for everybody. And I sort of felt like, well, I understand that. I mean, I'm going to dedicate my life to serve him. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to try and impact the lives of others because of him. Halfway through my education, I married my high school sweetheart. We had dated for three and a half years. When we got married, we were virgins. I always put that in the story just for the young people that are in the audience. I want you to know it can be done. And it's a good thing to do. That's why God says so. We got married and set up a little small apartment. And man, I was king of the hill. I had life by the tail. I couldn't play baseball anymore, but I could walk. I could play intramural sports. Uh, I was working now. I was taking loads of classwork because my goal when I went to school was to get it done as fast as possible. So I took the smallest semester hour load I took was 19 hours. Every other semester was 21 and 23 hours so that I could cram six years of school into about four and a half, and I did it. We both graduated, and we didn't have a church set up or lined up yet, didn't have a job lined up. So I went back to Florida, where we're both from, Uh, And we started searching, hunting for a church. At the time, I was working for her stepfather, and I loved it. I could also work for my father because I had grown up in his business. We were married for three years, and we finally landed a church, a pretty good-sized church in Plant City, Florida. I was going to be the minister of youth and education. 
And I thought I was ready for the task. I walked in. It was my first fancy office, really. Unloaded all of my stuff. Had bookshelves built in. A window that looked out onto the church playground. I thought I was set. I wasn't at that church four Sundays. One month. Four Sundays. And I woke up on a Sunday morning, and my wife informed me that she wasn't going to church that day. I assumed she didn't feel very well, so I said, okay, baby. And I kissed her, and I went on without her. When I got home, what happened and transpired over the next two weeks would change my life forever. You see, she believed she'd made a huge mistake. Even though we never fought, we never argued, we had a world-class marriage. I thought three years into marriage, we were still that cute little couple. Watch us go. We never raised our voice. I was a pretty good husband. I thought things were fantastic, but she didn't. I never should have married you. I don't want to be married to a minister. We were too young. I'm not sure I even love you. I'm not sure if there's chemistry. And she left. I had to resign my position at the church because at that time and in that particular denomination, you can't be divorced and have your family fall apart and still try to minister to others. That's probably a pretty good rule. I resigned the church and I went to work for my father because I'd grown up in that business And here's what I'd do. I'd wake up early in the morning. I'd go to work, and I'd work for 9, 10 hours, and I'd come home, and I'd sit in my dark little apartment and wait for the phone to ring. You see, I was waiting for an apology. I was waiting for a reconciliation. I was waiting for God to show up the way he showed up when I fell off a mountain. I mean, I could see it. Music was playing, and we were going to run through a meadow, and we were going to embrace in the middle. And it was going to be fantastic. It would be a story we would tell for the rest of our lives. God showed up and changed everything, but that call never came. Now, in the meantime, while my life is falling apart, my dad and my mom, they're trying to retire. They had a house. They had a business. They were trying to sell both of them because they had already bought a retirement home, big, beautiful, historic home in Spartanburg, South Carolina, set up on a hillside. It was stunning. My mom fell in love with it. They bought this house. They were going to retire there. But my dad just couldn't seem to sell his business and his home. So while my life is falling apart, they're trying to figure out how they can enter the new chapter in their life when they decided to go see my mother's sister in Augusta. Now, usually they would go up 301 and hit 25, and up they'd go through Millen and Waynesboro. But they didn't go that way this time. Dad pulled out the map and said, let's ride through some of these small towns. Let's go up a road called 121. On their way to Augusta, they rode through Metter, Georgia. And in the middle of Metter, there's this beautiful old historic home. It's got columns, I think 16 columns, all the way around that old southern front porch. The house was for sale. My mom loves old historic homes. Glenn, Glenn, stop. Let's call the number and at least go look at it. So they called the realtor. The realtor shows up. They walk in, they walk through it, oh, hardwood floors, look at that lead glass, look at the size of that entry door. It was beautiful to my mom. She just wanted to see it. They didn't want to buy it, for goodness sakes. They drove on to Augusta, and all they could talk about was that house. They met with my mom's sister. They came back through Metter. They stopped and looked at the house again. They got in their car, and they drove as far south as Cobbtown. Dad pulls the car over, says, Peggy, I think we should buy that house. My mom says, I want to buy it too. They turned around, they gave the money, they bought the house. Now they own two houses, three houses, and a business, and all they want is one house. Within two months of returning to Florida, both my father's business and his home and his home in Spartanburg all sold. 
for cash money. His life had totally changed. Mine was going down and down and down. I remember getting a buddy of mine. We loaded up all their furniture on a big moving truck, and we drove it six hours up the road and unloaded them there and met her. And then I drove back to Tampa because the agreement was I was going to stay with the new owner of the business. I didn't know anything about my dad's work. I mean, he knew, knew everything, but I knew enough to at least introduce the new owner to the employees, how things work, the clients, all the personnel. So I was going to stay six months to help him transition and meet all the people involved. And so dad's up here, mom's up here, they're happy, they're content, but their heart's broken because their child is so unhappy. Their son is walking in the darkness. Meanwhile, I'm still doing the same thing. I'm going to work for nine hours. I'm coming home and sitting by the phone. Finally, my dad calls me. He says, Michael, he says, move up here. Move up here to Metter. There's hunting and fishing like you're not going to believe. You're going to love Georgia Southern. A lot of pretty girls up here, Michael. That's what he said. You can go to the football games. You can get involved in the community. You're going to love it. We'll buy a business, and you can help me run it. He said, besides, Michael, you're only going to be five, six hours up the road. If she wants you, she'll be able to find you. It's not impossible. So finally, because I was miserable in Florida, I moved up here. Incidentally, I would remain miserable for quite some time. Because when I moved up here, I was feeling as if God had something to prove to me. God, you've got some explaining to do. This is not supposed to happen to someone like me. I mean, I was a good guy. I mean, I tried really hard. Things like this aren't supposed to happen to people like me. So when I moved to Metter, I found someone's little pond house, kind of removed out in the woods by a pond, and I rented it. I did the same thing I did in Florida. I drove to Statesboro. I worked my nine hours, and I drove home and hoped the phone would ring. I drove to Statesboro, worked my nine hours, and I drove home and hoped the phone would ring. I didn't go to church. I wasn't interested in going out to eat with my parents. I became a hermit for three years, literally, because God had severely let me down. Finally, my dad looks at me one day and he says, Michael, if you don't get your butt into church on Mother's Day for your mama, I'm going to disown you. Because they had been involved in a little church in Metter and, and they wanted me to get involved and good grief, they wanted me to go back into ministry. That's what I had trained for, but I wasn't interested in it. Oh, I hadn't lost faith in God. I hadn't lost faith in Jesus. I hadn't lost faith in the book. But I didn't need God's process. God's process didn't work as far as I was concerned. I certainly didn't need a Sunday school lesson. I didn't need some guy up there doing this, singing, bringing in the sheaves. That's not what I needed. So I sat in my little pond house, and I waited. Finally, on Mother's Day, I went to church. I'm 25 years old or so. I'm sitting there with my mommy and my daddy because my life has fallen apart. I might as well be living in their basement sponging off my parents. And there's this guy in front of me with broad shoulders and a master's jacket. It's not a master's jacket, but it's bright green just like that. And he's got white, kind of silvery white hair. And while we're singing and while the service is going on, he's right in front of me. The preacher says, turn around and shake hands with your neighbor. This guy turns around. It, I didn't know him then, but it's Michael Guido, the sower. You heard of him? He turns around, he's got glasses, that white hair, that green jacket. Hi there, he says. He said, I'd like to speak to you after the service. I said, okay, all right. Then I turned around, and I locked eyes with a hazel-eyed, beautiful blonde named Amy, who incidentally was going through something very similar to what I had gone through. She was sitting there with her mommy and daddy. 
But at the time, I really didn't care because I wasn't dating. You see, my faith and my theology told me that for Mike to do right, I got to wait till she gets married in Florida before I get involved with someone else. That's a biblical rule, and that is a fine rule, ladies and gentlemen. Eventually, I met Dr. Guido. You see, he was standing there, and he heard me sing while we were singing. He said, I like your voice. And he explained to me that he goes around on Sundays and preaches at a lot of different churches in the southeast, and he'd like me to go along with him and sing. You know, I could show up early at the studio, and this is the way it worked typically. I would show up at 5 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. I'd get in his giant Buick Roadmaster. He'd sit next to me, and we'd drive to Augusta, or we'd drive to Atlanta, or sometimes we flew even. And I would do the singing, and he would do the preaching, and then we'd come home. At that time, there was no song in my heart, I can promise you. I had only done it because he had put the screws to my dad, and my dad put the screws to me, and they pressured me into giving in. I remember the coolest thing about Michael Guido is we might go to a we might go to a 4000 person church in Atlanta on one Sunday and he'd preach his heart out and I'd sing in front of all these people and then the very next Sunday we might drive an hour and a half to Harlem, Georgia and there'd be 75 people there and he'd still preach his heart out and I'd still sing after a year or two of that I found out my wife in Florida got married, so I decided to date. I wanted to date Amy, but I couldn't at the moment. just didn't seem right yet. So I started dating Georgia Southern girls. Man, I dated some pretty girls. I dated some sorority sisters, but not very many because I just wasn't into it. I may have had six dates, that's all. And finally, I took Amy out. And once I took Amy out for the first time, I never dated anybody else, and all I wanted to do was date that one girl. We got married about 18 months later. Michael Guido married us in that beautiful little glass chapel there in the, in the Guido Gardens. It was supposed to be a very small, simple wedding with just her parents and my parents, her family and my family, but all her friends crashed it. There were like 50, 60 people. They're all surrounding this glass um, studio chapel. I felt like a fish in an aquarium. We got married and Guido started pushing me back toward ministry. Mike, when are you going to get into ministry? When are you going to get back into ministry? I finally agreed. Amy and I had been married about a year. And I took a little church. Never dreamed I'd ever be a pastor. I had trained to be a coach. I was an athlete. I was going to be a youth minister. But I took a little church called Morningside Church on the other side of Metter between Metter and Swainsboro little church, about 150 people. Three years into that church, I realized that if we don't start doing church different, we're not going to reach new people. So I took six months off. And in six months, all I did was walk the streets of Statesboro and talk to people in Metter and find out why they didn't go to church. I wasn't interested in talking to them if they went to church. I only wanted to talk to them if they didn't go to church, and I asked them, why don't you go? And they were offering some of the same reasons that I had been feeling for three years while I was a hermit. A lot of people say they believe in God, say they believe in Jesus, but they don't believe in his church. They don't believe in his process. Because maybe like me, they felt like they were doing pretty good, and this is how God chose to repay them? In 1995, we opened the doors to this church. This church is almost 28 years old, and Amy and I have been married for 30 years, going on 31. I want to read you something. It's been very special to me all my life. 
It's from Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. Paul wrote it at the end of his life. Paul wrote, not that I've already obtained all of this. In other words, my story is not complete. I haven't reached the goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. You see, that's what makes our story significant. I press on to take hold of what Christ has for me, good or bad. He goes on. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, I forget what is behind and I strain toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. If I had a life verse, that would probably be it. You see, because it's only after the darkness that you look back and you recognize my story was significant because it was part of God's story and I didn't even know he was writing it. When people come to this church over and over and over and over again, I hear it, new people. You know, Mike, what I like so much about grace, it just seems real. It just seems real. Nobody's putting on a pretense. It's not like I'm surrounded by, you know, religious, perfect people. It just seems real. This church, I don't think, would be what it is if my story hadn't been written the way it has. You see, not only is Moses' story significant and David's story significant, and of course the story of Jesus is ever so eternally significant, but your story is significant too. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to show you not only why it's significant, but how it's significant. Thank you for listening if you've heard it before, and God bless you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of serving you. Thank you for the privilege of knowing that you're always with us. You'll never, ever forsake us. Father, bless those who are considering the significance of their story. Remind them that all of us, as we follow your son, Jesus Christ, are part of a much greater, bigger, eternal story. Dismiss us now with your blessing, I ask. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Make it a great week. I'll see you next time.